One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week we are going to be talking to Jenny Bristow about the Great Generation Divide. Or is it the Great Exaggeration? We'll be talking about her book just a little bit later, but first I'm joined here in our Westminster studio by our Head of Digital and Millennial, Stephanie Boland. So Steph, what's your take? Great Generational (laughs) Divide or not? Well, we'll get into some of the questions with um, Dr. Bristow later around perhaps this divide has been exaggerated. But maybe we should start by going back a little bit to the David Willits report, which we can't be in this building, which we share with the Resolution Foundation without talking about Willits and intergenerational inequality, can we? So David Willits, former Margaret Thatcher um, advisor turned conservative minister turned think tank supremo, has like for a number of years, both with um, his own book, uh, The Pinch, and then later with the Resolution Foundation, his special commission is saying that we should stop talking as much as we do about class and that kind of thing and think more about the age divide. The baby boomers, as he sees it, are clearing up and then people... um, of your age, Steph, are losing out in terms of none of them have got houses, whereas previous generations might have owned a house by um, the time they got to 30. Um, They're commuting for longer. They've got less leisure even in some respects. And generally, it's a rum deal. That's his argument. How does it accord with your experience of life? (laughs) It's a big question. Well, we don't own a home, but we do have much better access to olive oil in the supermarkets, you know, swings and roundabouts. Things things get better as other things get worse. Um, What I'm really interested about, though, is that what David Willits was talking about and what I'll be talking about with Dr Bristow later is the economic split that you alluded to there. But there is also something cultural isn't there I know the Pew Research Centre that does a lot of work on generation gaps and tries to define these terms millennial gen z things like that talk about political touchstones so they point out that millennials likely to remember 9-11 whereas a gen z student won't for instance um so so millennials are born after 1980 I think yes so what is it are they 23 to 38 at the moment or are they now 24 to 39 They're something like that kind of yeah. boundary so i'm smack bang in the middle of the millennial and then generation z they're the younger the younger ones so they for instance possibly don't remember the obama election is what the pew research center says i suppose here we'd go they don't remember the the blair administration yeah would be about analogous um are you a boomer tom is that no if it's not too personal no, i mean i I, um, I think i'm a late generation xer 
So boom, I mean, one thing is America and Britain are different in that, like, in America, there was a, a, a boom in the early 60s in um, the numbers of babies being born. And um, in the UK, it was, you know, it really was the post-war baby boom. It's like 1948, 49, 50, I think. So they might have slightly different meanings across the Atlantic, but this idea of Generation X, I think, is about 1965 to about the mid-70s, so I sneak in at the, at the second end of that. But a friend was pointing out to me, who's also of the same vintage, that um, now that lots of people in the media who are like running things are kind of, you know, 45-ish to 55-ish, and it's in their interest to play up this great boomer versus some um, uh, millennials divide because they're not on either side of it. They can just sit it out and enjoy it as show business. That's interesting. I mean, I think we have quite a lot of millennials on stuff. I know Samir Rahim, our arts and books editor, keeps insisting on his millennial status. He's sort of an elder millennial, mm. um, just about, I think. And then Alex Dean, our, our contributing editor, we had a rather embarrassing incident in the office where we had to try and explain Bullseye to him, the TV show, because he'd <laughs> never seen that before. So I suppose what's often most visible is those, those cultural and political touchstones that you don't have in common. But when it gets to sort of social and economic policy, like some people get not just upset but really offended by this idea that you know uh that there's some great divide between a poor 66 year old who's worked hard all their life and a 26 year old who's struggling to get their feet in the on the property ladder and they say well you know life has always been hard for most people and if some of those older people have now got a few perks a free bus pass and whatever that isn't the big divide the big divide is still within each of the generations between the haves and have not. So what do you think? Well, this is what Bristow's book argues and which we'll we'll get into later. I do think a lot of it is stoked by frustration at misdirected anger. And again, this is something that will will come across in the interview. Um, but people my age often get quite frustrated when we're told that if only we stopped buying so much avocado toast and frothy coffees, then we'd all be homeowners, which obviously isn't true. Um, you become a homeowner if a wealthy relative dies, mostly. So mm. <laughs> that's where we're at. Okay, um, let's go over now to Steph's conversation with Jenny. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to the Prospect Podcast. I'm here with Jenny Bristow to talk about her new book, Stop Mugging Grandma, and why we need to stop having intergenerational warfare. Jenny, thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. Just tell me a little bit about the broad idea behind this book, because the title is certainly provocative. (laughs) Well, because um, I've been writing about generations and particularly ideas of generational conflict for some years now. And... um, it's always posed in terms of this sort of youth-friendly narrative, this sort of idea that we need to increase intergenerational fairness, we need to do more for young people. Um, Now, one of my arguments in the book is that this sort of narrative about taking resources from the old and giving them to young people really doesn't help young people. But also, I thought it should be called what it is, which is basically granny mugging. I mean, it's this sort of idea that you just, you know, look at old people and think, well, yeah, they're gone now, they're past it. You know, we, we sort of don't need this. Let's take away these various bits of benefit. Let's make them feel guilty about what they've got. Um, let's try and encourage them to move into smaller houses because they don't need all those bedrooms. And I just think it's a very kind of grubby idea. So hence it was a bit like, let's call it, it's granny mugging. <laughs> you have other phrases and terminology in here too, don't you? Tell me a little bit about this idea of austerity balance. Okay, so... Austerity ballads, I mean, it really came from, I was trying to kind of find ways of summarising the sort of mood music around ideas of intergenerational inequality and then campaigns for intergenerational justice, as it's called, or or equity. Um, And one of the dominant ones is, I think, um, a kind of narrative that takes austerity politics or economics or whatever and basically says, this is it. Right, this is what we've got now. We're going to have this forever. Uh, we've all got to tighten our belts. We've got to try and kind of reduce public expenditure. Um, it's not going to change. And therefore, um, what we need to do is find ways of taking money from some people to give it to other people. Right, it's a sort of, it's not even restructuring the welfare state because there's not really much actual redistribution going on here. But it becomes a sort of politicized idea of, why we should all tighten our belts and um, kind of presents the problem as being older people with too much rather than actually looking at the real problem, which is the stagnant economic situation, a lot of structural problems, very complicated questions that we can't solve. But that the, the problem with society at the moment is really not that there's too many rich pensioners. So that's basically that. Um, and that's the, 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 the austerity ballads are really the kind of ideas that informed... Uh, the work of the Intergenerational Commission, um, the work of uh, David Willits, who I've been you know, cr- critiquing respectfully for many years now, um, and you know campaigns of a similar nature in Australia and America. So this isn't just a, a British kind of idea. I think it's, but I think it's a kind of a general low expectations kind of campaign. And there's this other phrase, isn't there, millennial angst, which may also be a slightly <laughs> controversial term for some listeners. Millennial angst. Millennial angst was about... (laughs) When I started out writing this book, I was kind of, I think, to begin with, really wanting to focus on the the granny-mugging side of the the problem, that, you know, it's not really the 
the problem of, of, of older people. But as I was, as I got more into it, I got really cross about the way in which young people are framed in this discussion. And what tends to happen is that I think there's an understandable backlash against the idea that the problem is old people and they've got too much money and we should take from them. And then that tends to become a sort of argument that young people are, well, they're entitled, they don't want to do any work, they're just moaning, you know, the problem is the kids. And I don't think that's true, actually. I don't think that's fair. I think young people have always wanted to make a better life for themselves. I think it's not entitled to expect that you should have years in education and be able to get a half-decent job. I think young people absorb a lot of the cultural anxieties around at the moment, um, which do make it very difficult to make sense of their predicament. And so what I was trying to do with millennial angst was to say that it's actually understandable that young people are kind of kicking out against some of the problems they face today. And that what I find really problematic is the way that that angst is kind of fed into an idea that old people are the problem. Because when you listen to young people, well, most of the ones I've talked to, including my, you know, my students at university or just people I talk to generally, um, they, they don't see the problem as their parents or their grandparents, but they are frustrated because they can't get a house, you know, wages are stagnant, they've got this sense of limited opportunities. It's interesting, isn't it, that this crosses the left-right divide because you speak obviously about you know, conservatives recoiling against a feckless young, but you also cite a Momentum video that was all about older people pulling up the ladder behind themselves. Why was that so off-putting? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is very interesting about the intergenerational kind of uh, justice discussion is that it crosses party political boundaries very self-consciously. Um, I mentioned David Willits before, um, who was obviously a Conservative Party minister, um, but the Labour Party really then, in the 2017 election, sought to play the youth card, and that video is a kind of a classic example. And I think what's going on from both sides is that economic problems are being presented as problems of generation, right? So it's a sort of a displacement of an argument about the problems of capitalism, we might say, or just that all the problems of recession, crisis, um, and there's a sense that there's nothing we can do about that. So what we need to do is kind of um, find ways of taking something away from, you know, the, the richer people. And I think with the, the Labour campaign, I mean, what I thought was really horrible about that, um, but, you know, all sides of this discussion do it, is they try and sort of build some kind of I know, fake um, solidarity, or not solidarity, it's the wrong word, but commonality of interest amongst people just because they're young and they sort of weaponize youth. Um, and that's not going to, I mean, you know, how is that going to lead to a fairer society? I mean, it really, it really isn't. And so I was very struck by the momentum video because you think, well, if you really were you know, trying to present yourselves as having a kind of a left-wing alternative to the problems of today why are you just buying this same tune you know and creating that kind of sense of division see what's really interesting to me here is how class is apparently absent from the frame I mean I'm 28 but as a 28 year old white woman with a good job living in London my life is quite different perhaps to a 28 year old woman without that fancy job living in um, the town where I was born which is Oldham isn't it 
oversimplifying to homogenise those age brackets and act as if we're all the same by dint of them. Yes, I think it is. And I think it goes back to this this problem of presenting economic problems as, as generational ones. It, it, it's missing a, a huge discussion that, I mean, dominated politics throughout the 20th century about problems of, <laughs> you know, economic, social life, um, problems of inequality, problems of how you organise society. Um, and I think, you know, what I'm, I, I do try and say in the book that I, I think generation is important in terms of, you know, a concept that expresses something about how we experience the world. You know, that there is something that all 28-year-olds will have in common in a general sense of having kind of come of age in that time. I mean, well, all 28-year-olds living in Britain, say. Um, a certain kind of cultural sensitivity and, and everything else. But the idea that that makes them all the same is really, really odd. And yes, you see this discussion um, in discussions about older people, the idea that all older people now are like these kind of affluent baby boomers who retired with silver-plated pensions and own several houses and you know, conveniently ignoring the millions and millions and millions who don't. Um, and same with you know, millennials or even younger generations, um, this idea that all millennials are benighted and downtrodden. And I mean, that's not true. I mean, as we know, middle class people tend to have a better chance in life than working class people. But we're not talking about class anymore. We're talking about generation. And so it, it it's a fudge. It's tricky from a policy perspective, though, because there's almost something to be gained from making it a generational split, you know, tuition fees versus TV licences almost. Well, quite, quite. But again, I think this is sort of, I mean, I don't think it's a conspiracy, but I think it is deliberate. I think there's been a sort of a deliberate reframing of the problems in these kind of generational terms, which means that, you know, policymakers can kind of make these sweeping pronouncements. Now, Whatever effect that has on the actual policy, I don't know. I mean, usually with these things, it seems to me that state expenditure never actually goes down or you know, whatever. But it becomes a sort of a justification for why everyone should think of uh, think that they should expect or deserve less. Let's talk a little bit about gender, because you cite this story, which I find really interesting, about a mother and daughter where the daughter is renting property off her mother, I think in London Bridge, so you know, quite an expensive area of London. And there's a bit of a debate, isn't there, about whether or not young women are worse off because they don't have homes or whether they have these rights their mothers don't. Tell me a little bit about that story. Well, yes. I mean, yes, this is a very interesting predicament. I should say to start off with, I think the whole better or worse dichotomy doesn't really work. Because I think what's happened is that if you look at the baby boomer generation, so in that story, the mother was, um, a, I think, a fairly young baby boomer, but anyway, had been to university in the 70s and then kind of graduated and got a job and then had a, worked in the arts or something like that um, and then managed to have a house and a flat. And her daughter, who, I mean, I thought it was really funny because it was a real poor little me article. I think the daughter was quite high up in the Sunday Times at the time and, you know, ha had gone to Oxford, you know, was talking about, well, we had all these kind of pleasant holidays in Italy. So actually very privileged and very conscious of her own privilege. But, uh, yeah, so, but she was sort of talking about how, um, you know, she didn't feel that her generation was able to grow up because uh, they couldn't afford to buy their own property and, 
everything seemed harder to achieve um and you know there was a financial crisis at the time when she came back from backpacking around the world yeah that kind of thing which she'd managed not to notice until she read the paper on the plane you know anyway um and her mother's response was yes but you don't have it all bad um and particularly for women a lot has improved um you know now it's not only that women are expected to go to university, for example, more women go to university and achieve better at university than young men. Um, that women aren't expected just to marry and have children, they have careers. You know, there's been huge strides in, in women's equality. And I think that's really true. I think that's the, the gender element of this discussion is, is often missed. I think the caveat is that the strides in terms of equality and certain things you know having kind of improved and we all have better standards of living and access to better this also came up in the article um access to better food you know like avocados are not, no longer exotic and that kind of thing um there is it, it's not just like an untrammeled story of kind of progress and fulfillment i think young women have tensions to do with for example you know, going to university, you finish your degree, you might do a master's, there's a certain amount of time to establish yourself in the labour market. Then there's the question of when you have children, then there's the juggling of children and work. And it's great that women can work, but also in policy terms now you have to until you're 67. You know, I mean, so I think there are, there are issues. It's not all brilliant, but I think it often does get missed that in many ways young women have opportunities that they're you know, previous generations could only have dreamt of. Well, it comes back to your point about differences within generations, doesn't it? Just because you're a certain age and lived through a period of economic boom doesn't mean your life is fantastic. Yeah, you can't buy meaning. I think that's the point. And that's what the baby boomer generation, you know, the 60s generation, when they were young, that was what they were doing, really. Um, by, you know, and they did come of... They came of age in a time of, you know... Well, it was obviously economic boom, but also relative optimism um but they you know they wanted more and they were after a kind of a way of making meaning out of their society and, and challenging things and I mean it wasn't all brilliant I mean I'm you know I'm quite uneasy and critical of lots of aspects of the culture of the 60s but there was that sense then of just really saying look this isn't enough you know we want to do it our own way we want to think new things and I think it's the same for young people today that um being able to have avocado on toast and frothy coffee you know doesn't actually compensate for the fact that there's a real sense of i don't know downbeat bitterness around that everything's hopeless and you know we're not going to go very far and the problem is this um the idea of the generational conflict in this just encourages young people to i mean this is the argument you know that their future has been stolen you know and there's a kind of real sense of say saying to young people well doesn't matter what you do because your future is going to be rubbish because this has been you know predestined by the bad behavior of older people it's just not true let's talk a bit about gen z and future generations because apart from the fact that commentators tend to extend millennial to as young as they want when they're talking about you know they tend to cut off these very young voters what are your thoughts on today's teenagers well, hmm, Gen Z, I mean, I suppose that yeah, they are probably the young people now. I mean, millennials are getting on a bit um, by most kind of definitions. 
Um, I think the the narrative around Gen Z is really interesting because what's happened in a nutshell is that the idea of you know intergenerational unfairness has been was scripted as a kind of idea of baby boomers versus millennials, right? Baby boomers really bad, greedy, sociopathic, one author calls them, selfish, screwed up everything. Millennials are victims, you know, they don't know, um, they've got no control over their future. Yeah, you know, they live in a terrible kind of situation. Now, a few years on, millennials have grown up a bit. So, I mean, the oldest millennials are now in their 30s, right? So there's a limit on how long they can be young for. And the narrative has now started to kind of say, well, the millennials, yeah, well, they're a bit entitled. You know, they're basically like the echo boomers. They're basically, you know, there's traces of them that are like these bad baby boomers. The ones who are the real victims are the younger ones, who were the kids who were kind of born at the time of the global financial crisis. And, you know, these are the kids who are all kind of, you know, epidemic rates of mental illness and um, they just haven't got any kind of future ahead of them. Um, but at the same time, this is the way the narrative goes, maybe they'll be all right because they won't have been born with any expectations of good things. Because <laughs> the problems with millennials was they thought that they could, you know, they thought they could have loads of shiny things. Whereas Generation Z, and they're right at the end of the line, you know, they're Generation Z. They will come up with a new name for them at a certain point. Now, I think that is, you know, uh, well, I think what's interesting about it is, first of all, it shows, shows how stupid the whole generational labeling destiny argument is because um you know, you're only young for a very very short period of time as i know you know suddenly you go from being in your 20s to in your 40s and you think where did all that time go um so making an argument around youth is not going to benefit you yourself for very long right um i think the discussion about generation z what's happening is that because society at the moment is there's a, you know, there's a lot of political confusion, um, anxiety. Um, there's a lot of economic doom and gloom. And I think this has framed the way that we think about young people and the way we're encouraging them to think about themselves. Um, and I think that's just projected onto them. You know, so for example, I don't think they're all mentally ill, right? But I think there's a projection, well, what's, what's the matter with these kids? And it's like, well, they, it's not the kids that have changed. The kids are the kids. It's the way we think about these things where we're pathologizing young people for having these experiences. And as for future generations, I mean, I, uh, for a long time, worked with an um, abortion charity. Um, yeah, I'm a very pro-choice person. Um, and you'd have a lot of discussions with people who came from a different perspective, you know, what's often called pro-life or anti-abortion or whatever. Now, the thing is, uh, this just means that I'm very uh, suspicious when people start talking about the unborn because there's a long history in anti-abortion campaigning of using the unborn as a way of trumping the rights of the people who are already alive, okay? And you can really see this in the generation discussion now that, you know, you get this discussion about young people and then you get this younger generations and then it goes to future generations and, you know, the unborn. And who speaks for future generations? Not any generation currently living. So somebody has got to be appointing themselves the voice of these future generations. So basically what I'm saying in the book is this is a kind of an elitist argument. Somebody is appropriating the voice of the kids not yet born 
to actually damage the prospects of the kids who are now alive. It sounds like a very simple point going people age. Um, but I, I mean, I like you, I'm giving my politics away do a lot in feminist politics and I always get quite frustrated when women my age go oh stupid older feminists don't understand our politics and how things are in reality today because I think you do, you do know one day you're going to wake up and be in your 50s and people will call you stupid as well you, you should probably make a, an investment in <laughs> in being allowed to have an opinion at that age um, but there there is something in this idea of chasing a youth vote or a grey vote as you you reference in the book that can only be short-sighted because um, we, we are all going to get get older. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, what, are you going to have a referendum every year? <laughs> if, you know, if the problem is that, you know, young people who weren't old enough to vote, now, uh, you know, talking about the, you know, obviously explosive um, EU referendum of 2016, but, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of, sim- I've talked to a lot of, you know, earnest sort of, at the time, 16-year-olds who were so frustrated about not being able to have a say. And I do have a lot of sympathy for that because it is frustrating and it was a really important moment. But this is the problem. You can't, once you start saying, oh, what about the the kids? It's like, well, then you, you know, the, the, the kids today will be tomorrow's university students and then in their 30s. So unless you're going to just ask the same question constantly, you're not going to be able to... You know, and this is the problem with this notion of age divisions, um, because to pick up on your feminism example, you know, it always seems to me what's going on there is you've got different ideas about what feminism is and what it should be and what it constitutes and everything. So, um, and that's fine. You know, I mean, feminism has always had loads of different strands to it and there have always been arguments. But the notion now that there's the kind of old feminism and the new feminism doesn't doesn't get to that sense of there being... Um, different um, different views and it's the same with old politics and young politics I mean the reality is that politics only works if it is assumed that people can think beyond their own immediate situation and most people don't vote for something that is just going to benefit them now as a young person or as an old person they do actually think about their families the society as a whole their ideology if they've got any so there you go. That's the secret to the whole thing is people people grow up at some point. Yeah, people grow up and people are capable of being quite expansive, I think, and, and generous. And the intergenerational, well, the generational contract, you know, the intergenerational relations are so important in society. I mean, that's how we look after elderly people. That's how we raise children. That's why we educate, you know. I mean, you work in teaching in any... I work at university, but when my kids are at school... You know, all of this stuff is an incredibly valuable um, thing about the transmission of ideas and knowledge and care from one generation to another. And and so this this idea that now it should be seen as something that you know, is dividing people, I mean, it's not only empirically wrong, but I think it's really quite destructive. It does. I mean, picking up off that example, I always get quite frustrated when people who don't have children go, I don't want my taxes to be put towards childcare. Because you go, well, somebody's going to need to care for you in the nursing home. Hello. I'm expressing all of my reaction yeah. views <laughs> with you here, but um, I, I can feel your frustration on it. So Stop Mugging Grandma is available now. And Jenny Bristow, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening to Stephanie Boland's chat with Jenny Bristow there about her book, Stop Mugging Grandma. And I'm sure that these Generation War themes are ones that will continue to return to in the pages of Prospect. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer, and if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. We'll see you again next week. Thanks very much, and goodbye.